This morning we are continuing our series to the book of Zephaniah, which, Lord willing, we will finish next week. So I want to invite you, if you've not already done so, to take your Bibles and turn with me to Zephaniah chapter 3. If you're using the, the, the blue pew Bible, the seat back in front of you, you can find that on page 789, four books to the left of Matthew between Habakkuk and Haggai. So far in uh, our look at this book, we have noticed several major themes that have arisen. Zephaniah's prophecy, which if you remember is uh, a little bit before the year 600 B.C., um, his prophecy to Judah here is in, in some ways pretty straightforward. God's judgment would come upon them for their idolatry and hypocrisy. It would come upon them for their oppression of the weak and the helpless. They had forsaken the Lord and His covenant with them. And so, uh, in history, we see the fulfillment of this prophecy primarily in 586 B.C., where God's fury was poured out upon Judah through the invasion of the Babylonian army. But, Zephaniah also teaches us that God is not only going to judge Judah, but that He's going to judge the entire world. Beginning with the the particular pagan nations that surrounded Judah at the time, and also um, moving out to the whole earth at a time yet to come. And we began to see last week, uh, really last week in particular, that the day of the Lord, prophesied here in Zephaniah, is not just a day of judgment. That that is uh, the pervading theme through the first part of the book, but the, the day is not just one of judgment, but it's a day of blessing as well. And we we saw a little picture of that last week. We'll see a greater picture of that today. And next week, Lord willing, we will see the, the sun rise in its full strength. And, and so, ultimately, it's both judgment and blessing in the book. And they both have a local and a global emphasis, as well as a temporal and an eternal emphasis. We've seen a focus on the judgment in its temporal emphasis so far is what's really been the the major thing we've considered. God threatened to bring the physical nation of Israel to an end. And He's going to bring destruction upon the pagan nations surrounding Judah for their mistreatment of God's people. But as the book tilts toward its end, we see a shift from the global, uh, toward the global and toward the eternal. It's not just a time in history that's under consideration, but a time... um, at the very end of history as, as we know it. It's not just Judah and the nations that surround, surrounded Judah, but it's the whole earth. And we see this emphasis now on blessing rather than judgment. So let's, today, we're going to look at Zephaniah 3, 1 through 13. I've entitled the sermon, Woe to Her. her key, and the key words for our worshipers and training are judgment, nations, and refuge. Now, I assume that uh, you're all familiar with the phrase that it's darkest before dawn. It's become a common phrase that's used uh, often to convey hope even when circumstances are really bad, even in the worst of circumstances. Now, I don't actually know scientifically if it's true that it's darkest before dawn. I looked it up. I tried to figure it out. I got basically probably not. However... Metaphorically, it's a helpful reminder that even when things seem worse than they ever have been, 
there is still hope. The phrase seems to have first been used by Thomas Fuller in 1650 in his travelogue, which, if I might say, he most eloquently entitled a Pisgah site of Palestine and the confines thereof. In the book, Fuller attempts to give a biblical geography of the Holy Land, in other words. And he he describes many things relating to Jewish life during the times of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, at one point in the book, he reflects on the events recorded in 1 Samuel 30. While David was away from the city Ziklag, uh, he was out with the army, the Amalekites came and they burned the city. They burned Ziklag, they took the women and the children captive. And this left the army, who was with David, very angry and bitter in soul, and so they spoke of of stoning him. Well, on this passage, Fuller comments, he says, Thus, it is always darkest before the day dawneth. So God used to visit His servants with the greatest advancement when when He intends their speedy... Sorry, the greatest affliction when He intends their speedy advancement. For immediately after, David not only recovered his loss with advantage, but also was proclaimed king of Israel. So he's saying that we see in the, often in the most bitter moments of our lives, light is just around the corner. And this is what we're dealing with really in our passage this morning. The end of Zephaniah is like the breaking of dawn after a long and dark night. Or as we've experienced uh, in several times over the last several weeks, right? Uh, the sun coming out from behind the clouds after very uh, bad storm or lots of rain. We have the sun rising this morning. That's what we're going to see, and next week we'll come to high noon. But before that happens, we, we come uh, to what you could call in some, some sense the darkest hour of the night where we have one final, urgent warning of impending doom. So as we consider our passage this morning, Zephaniah 3, 1-14, through we're going to do so under two very basic headings. The first, we're going to look at the warning. The warning of judgment threatened against Judah and the nations. And then second, we will see the sun rise in a promise of blessing for uh, Judah, but also for the whole world. So first, let's consider Zephaniah's final warning of the coming judgment. In the first eight verses of chapter 3, he gives one last warning to Judah and to the nations. In verses 1-7, to his focus is upon Judah. In verse 8, he concludes with a word of warning to the nations. And so I want to consider each of those in turn. So under the heading of judgment, we're going to see judgment against Judah and the nations. As we look at God's judgment against Judah, we see two things. First, in verses 1-5, to we get a glimpse of Judah's compounding sins and the contrast that establishes between them and God. So we're going to look at Judah's sins in verses 1-5. to Then in 6-7, to we see the stubbornness of the human heart in Judah's refusal to heed God's warnings as he judged other nations around them. So as we look at the judgment against Judah, we will see their sin and their refusal to repent. So first in verses 1-5, to we see Judah's compounding sins. 
I realize this outline can get a little messy here, because here we're going to see three things. We see the heart of sin, which is pride. We see, secondly, that uh, unchecked pride leads to greater and greater manifestations of sin. And third, we're going to see that how all of that, um, it highlights God's holiness. So let me read verses 1 to 5. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does know injustice. Every morning He shows forth His justice. Each dawn He does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. And So again, we see here three things in these verses. We see first the heart of pride. The Lord had threatened woe against the seacoast and its inhabitants in verse 5 of chapter 2, but now He proclaims a woe over Jerusalem. But you might not think it was Jerusalem. In fact, for them, they probably didn't at first. It's a surprising shift that He makes. If you remember at the end of uh, chapter 2, what we saw last week, He was talking about Nineveh. You see, Zephaniah wouldn't have, have... spoke or written with chapter headings or, or even verse numbers that we have that kind of indicate perhaps there's something different going on here. So the original audience would have, would have heard or, or seen this reference to the, the oppressing city and they would have thought, absolutely, Zephaniah, you go. Bring the heat against those wicked Assyrians. Because just in the very last verse in chapter 15, the exultant city which is a reference back up to Nineveh in verse 13, that's who he was talking about. He says in verse 15, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. But in verse 2, he says that the city that he's talking about here doesn't draw near to her God. Now this would be an odd reference to Nineveh. And so it's only at that point that Judah would begin to pause and say, wait, it... Is he, talking about, is he talking about us again? This is like the Pharisees when they get angry at some of Jesus' parables because they perceive that He's talking about them. Yeah, this is Jeff, Zephaniah is talking about Judah. Ju- Judah, Jerusalem has defiled herself. She oppresses her inhabitants. The description of her rebellion here is is striking. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She doesn't draw near to God. This is what we saw in chapter 1, verse 6. That the Lord is going to judge Judah because she doesn't seek or inquire of the Lord. She was trusting in herself. This This is pride. You see this a beautiful illustration of this in Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16 is a great picture of biblical theology, and, and there we're told the sad story of the Lord's faithless bride. In an analogy of marriage, the, in, the entire history of Israel is depicted in Ezekiel 16. Well, I, I really encourage you to go and read the chapter in its entirety 
um, sometime when you get the chance, perhaps very soon. And I just I want to really reference just a portion of it now. In verses one to fourteen, we're told how God rescued Israel after she was born and left to die. He rescued her. She was born, left to die, wallowing in her blood, but God rescues her. He saves her. And after she grows up, she's ready to marry. He marries her. He enters into covenant with her. It says He wraps her in fine linen and covered her with silk. He put bracelets on her wrists and a chain on her neck. He gave her jewelry and a beautiful crown. He adorned her with gold and silver and the finest cloth for her clothes. She ate fine flour and honey and oil. In the care of her beloved, she grew exceedingly beautiful. In verse 15, though, we're told that she became proud. The Lord says to her, you trusted in your beauty and were unfaithful because of your renown and lavished unfaithfulness on any passerby. Your beauty became His. This is what Zephaniah is talking about. This is what he's addressing in these verses. Judah had come to trust in her own beauty. She had come to live upon her own goodness, upon her own splendor. She wasn't interested in listening to the voice of God. She wasn't interested in receiving any correction for her wrongs. Her trust was in herself. And what about us? What about you? What what voice, whose voice are you hearing? Do you listen merely to your own? Or maybe it's the world around you? Or do you listen to God's voice? What about correction? How do you receive a rebuke? When someone confronts you in your sin, does does your inner lawyer immediately come out? Looking for every defense? Are you an approachable person? Can people disagree with you? Or are you totally uninterested in learning from other people? You know, there are, there are a multitude of proverbs that we could quote here to drive this point home, and allow me just to mention two. Proverbs 12:15 says that the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Likewise, Proverbs 18.2 says that the fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. And so, as we look at these verses here, we need to ask ourselves, am I always right in my own eyes? Do I ever listen to advice? Do I ever listen to the voice of the Lord as He speaks to me through His Word? Do you delight in understanding or are you only interested in doing things your own way? This was Judah's problem. We see how it turned out for them. Secondly here, we see where where pride leads. So, So we consider the judgment of Judah... We're looking in verses 1-5, to we see the outcome of a prideful heart. How it leads to further manifestations of sin. Unchecked pride, we see in verses 3-4, to leads to all kinds of sins we would never imagine committing now. What we see in 
uh, these two verses is the utter corruption that, that took over the nation of Judah. Both Judah's civil and ceremonial life had become utterly corrupt. Her officials and judges were like wild beasts devouring everything in sight. Is that the kind of judicial system you want to live under? I don't. But this is exactly what Judah had become. These were a people who were supposed to love kindness and act justly. Deuteronomy 17, we're given a design, God's design for His nation's leaders, namely the kings. They were to write for themselves a copy of the law. They were to keep it with them. And they were to read it all the days of their lives. The king was to do this so that he would learn the fear of God by keeping the words of the law that his heart may not be lifted up against his brothers that he might not turn aside from the commandment. In Deuteronomy 16, the Lord says, you shall not pervert justice. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live long in the land. You shouldn't pervert justice. And so the Lord here is rebuking Judah for their perversion of justice. Their judges had become like wolves devouring the poor and the helpless. Well, we see also their religious leaders were perverse. A prideful heart leads one not only to forsake civic duties, but religious duties as well. The prophets and priests were corrupt. We've seen this in several ways in Zephaniah already. They, they had given themselves over to the worship of Baal, to the worship of the stars, the worship of Molech, even to the point of sacrificing their own children. This is really a problem for Israel in, in all of her history. Right? Moses hadn't even come down from the mountain speaking with the Lord in Exodus 32 before they had built and started worshiping the golden calf at the leadership of Aaron. Ultimately, in these two verses, 3 and 4, we see a failure of Israel to uphold the two great commandments. They have failed to love their neighbors as they love themselves. This is verse 3. But this is because they had failed to love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's verse 4. And we, we have a, an excellent summary of what pride does. It does violence to the law. Right at the end of verse 4 there. Pride does violence to God's law. Well then in verse 5, we, we, we see the contrast given between sinful Israel, sinful Judah, and the holy God. We see this contrast of the wicked and perverse city of man and God. In contrast to the wicked people of Judah, the Lord reminds us in verse 5, He is not unjust. It says He does not forsake righteousness. Every day, He does what is right. And He does not fail. And so let me say, if you're, if you're here this morning and you've been hurt or wounded by God's people, which to some degree is going to really extend to all of us, I'm sorry that that happened to you. 
I'm sorry that you were mistreated or abused by someone in the church. And while we admit that no person except for God is perfect, there's nothing acceptable about God's people perverting justice and willfully harming another person. So if you have some experience in your life where you've been harmed by someone claiming to be a Christian, if they haven't done so, they should repent of that sin. They should seek your forgiveness. Seek God's forgiveness. But I want to encourage you not to assume that just because God's people have let you down, that God will ever let you down. Despite the faults and failings of those who follow the Lord, He has no faults and failings. He never does injustice. And so whatever, ex- whatever injustice you've experienced at the hands of God's people, I am truly sorry. And I commend to you the Lord who shows forth justice every morning like the dawn. He doesn't fail. And so that's Judah's sin. But what about even further, we see the the judgment that God had, had leveled against other nations, but their refusal to repent. So we see their sin in verses 1 to 5 and 6 through 7, we see their their refusal to repent. We see the stubbornness of the human heart in Judah's refusal to heed God's judgment against the other nations, which as we'll see in a minute, as when I read the these verses, that they were meant to serve as a reproof to Jerusalem that she might turn back to God. We read in verses 6 and 7, he says, I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Judah had seen over and over again how God judged four nations around them who arrayed themselves against God and against His people. Over and over, He had brought these nations to their knees. All it takes is a cursory glance through the Old Testament to see the ways in which God judged these various pagan nations that surrounded Judah. Think of Jericho, or Ai, or the Amorites, or Libna, or Hazor, or the Hittites, the Perizzites, Jarmuth, Harma, Tapua, Aphek, and Tizra, to name but a few of the ones that were sort of easier to pronounce. Israel saw all of these peoples defeated and brought low before the Lord. And Yahweh takes time in our passage here to remind them of this. It's devastating language. They are cut off. Places are left desolate in utter ruins. Streets are completely empty. And in verse 7, he says he does this. His intention is for Judah. He does it certainly to judge them for their sins, but he also does it so that Judah might see and they might repent in order that they might be saved. They would turn to the Lord in faith that they might be saved. This is what we saw last week when we looked at God's judgment against the nations surrounding them at the time. God judges sin wherever it's found. 
Judah was to see the destruction of these pagan nations as a picture of what would happen to them if they were to continue in their sin. But instead of turning back to the Lord, they doubled down. He said, in the face of this judgment, they were eager to corrupt their ways. What an indictment on the human race. Even in the face of the greatest consequences for our sins, how often do we press on full steam ahead like nothing's ever happened? Because this is about Judah, but honestly, this is about all... This is natural man. Man in his natural state. We see others judged and we think, that'll never happen to me. So we press on. Well, in verse 8, we see a shift from the local to the global. We move from Israel. We move from Judah to the world. And God says He's going to unleash the full vent of His wrath and fury upon unbelieving Jerusalem, but also upon the nations. He says, Therefore wait for Me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for My decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them My indignation, all My burning anger, for in the fire of My jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. And this harkens back to Chapter 1, verse 18. There we read, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of His jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end, He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Here God threatens a day when He will assemble nations together. He will pour out His wrath upon them. There is a day set when God will judge the world and those who have lived in rebellion against Him. He will bring them to utter ruin. His anger isn't just against Judah, but against the entire world of unbelief. Judgment may begin the household of God, but it extends into every place where sin is to be found. In Psalm 75, we get a terrifying picture of the coming judgment of God against the entire world. It says, At that time, at the set time I appoint, I will judge with equity. For not from the east or from the west, not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the tracks. What horror. Thomas Fuller was right. It's always darkest before the day dawns. But in the mercy of God, For some, judgment is not the last word. So we come to verses 9-13. through We can breathe a sigh of relief. We've seen the last word of judgment here in Zephaniah. It's an important backdrop, but now from verses 9-20, through we're just going to look 
through the end of verse 13 and the time that remains here, but the, the sun has broken over the coast and the light climbs the horizon to meet our eyes. We see God's promised blessing upon Judah and the nations. We're going to read verses 9 to 13. It says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Notice the timing of these words. It's odd. He says, at that time, in verse 9, and on that day, in verse 11, and so it's, it's, it's the same day. The same day that brings uh, disaster and anguish to so many people will also be a day of blessing to others. The day prophesied here is a day of judgment and a day of restoration. But it's not just a remnant of Judah like we saw last week that will be saved, but there's a remnant of, of those among all the nations. What mercy! The holy and just God who has every right to wipe out all of creation under heaven promises that in the midst of judgment against His people and against their enemies, He will preserve a remnant that will return to Him and be saved. So I, as we look... As we kind of begin landing the plane here, I just want to look at the nature of this blessing. First in verse 9, we see three things. First in verse 9, God will purify the lips of the people that they may call upon the name of the Lord. This brings to, to my mind at least Isaiah 6, where Isaiah, he, he sees the King of heaven, he sees Him in His glory, and he admits that he and his people are are unclean. They have unclean lips. They're unworthy to, to see the King, to speak of Him to speak to Him. But here, God promises a day when He will purify, like He did the lips of Isaiah. He will purify the lips of the nations that they too may call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Second, we see that God, He is with that, He is calling to Himself worshipers from all nations. This isn't just some a few random places, but from all peoples. This is from beyond the rivers of Cush. At the time of the prophecy, God's people, Judah, they're you know basically centrally located in, in one place. That's kind of becoming less true. Um, but finally, in, in 586, that's they're totally dispersed. But he says that this this centrality of Judah, it's going to change. They're going to be dispersed throughout all the world. And and so he's calling to himself people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation so that they can call upon the Lord. They can bring their offerings before Him. And while this is anticipated in many places in the Old Testament, it's honestly not what many would have expected. 
We've seen this several times, but God is not some local deity interested in only one particular people group. God is the supreme ruler of all the earth, and He is saving for Himself a people from every place on earth. Well, third, there's a return to Judah in this blessing in verses 12 to 13. He's blessing the whole world, but He's blessing Judah as well. When He judges the earth and brings down His wrath and all who dwell in unbelief, He will not put His own people to shame, even though they have rebelled against Him. God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And in the end, all that will be left will be those who have sought refuge in the name of the Lord then there will be no injustice. There will be no deceit and no fear. This is the gist of all that we've seen. Those who live by faith in the Son of God will find mercy on the day of wrath. Those who suppress the truth, whatever truth it is they know about God, whatever truth they suppress in unrighteousness, it will be, they will be fully and finally given over to their sinful lust and condemned forever on the day of wrath. God will not restrain His anger in the slightest against those who reject Him as their King, but for those who take refuge in the Lord, there is grace, mercy, and peace to be found forever. Brothers and sisters, ultimately, all of this looks forward to the New Testament and the coming of Christ. Because we have to ask the question, how is it that God calls the nations to Himself? How is it that He calls anyone to Himself? He does it through His Son, Jesus Christ. There's a song that we sing here often called, O Church, Arise. And the second verse goes like this. It says, Our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure. And Christ will have the prize for which He died, an inheritance of nations. Christ will have the prize for which He died, an inheritance of nations. This is what Zephaniah 3, 9 through 13 anticipates. This is what Psalm 2 anticipates. There, God makes a promise to his son. He says, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your possession, the ends of the earth as your inheritance. The kings of earth are then commanded, in light of this, to be wise, to serve the Lord with fear and trembling. It says, To kiss the son, lest he be angry, and they are destroyed in his wrath, which is quickly kindled. But, Psalm 2 ends, Blessed is everyone who takes refuge in the Lord. There is blessing when we flee to Christ. I mentioned uh, the passage that Thomas Fuller was, was referencing, 1 Samuel 30. This is what we see David doing when he's facing death. Verse 6 tells us, David strengthened himself in the Lord. He made God his refuge. And so, In closing, have you done that? Have you made the Lord your refuge? This is the great hope of the Gospel. All who make their refuge in the Lord shall not be put to shame. 
if you are in Christ, there, are, there is a day coming for you, brother, sister, when all the wrongs shall be made right. There shall be no more sorrow, no more suffering. You shall have nothing to fear, for the Lord Himself will do this. Let's pray. Father, we admit our neediness. We admit our inadequacy. I come before You pleading that Your Spirit would take these words and would plant them deep within our hearts and that You would change us, conform us further into the image of Christ, Would you get much glory for yourself in our midst today? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.